now hear God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the inhabitants and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down, because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Pray with me together as we come again to God's word this morning. Father God, once again, we are grateful to you for your word. We are grateful for it in every portion of it. We confess, Father, that there is no portion of it that is just the musings or speculations or imaginations of men, but that your Holy Spirit breathed out these words as the very breath of God. And we confess that therefore it is all profitable for us 
It is all living. It is all active. It is all powerful. And Father, we ask this morning that as we come to it, you would help us to be able to understand it in our minds. And Father, for our hearts to be convinced of it and convicted by it. And that you would use it, Father, to renew our minds and to cause our lives to continue to change and to be conformed to the very image of Christ. All of this we pray in his great name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm glad to see you all here this morning. I hope everyone is doing okay in the midst of the storms we've been having. I know a lot of people have been impacted and affected. Uh, by some sort of loss probably during the storms, loss of power, some of you still without power after days and days, maybe loss of food if your generator ran out of gas or if your refrigerator wasn't running for long enough. I know a lot of people, maybe not from our church, but a lot of people in the Santa Cruz area experienced flooding in their homes, loss of property, loss of homes, some of them loss of businesses and revenue, some of them, and on top of the rains, that brings to my mind a lot of other reminders that are around us all the time that loss is a reality that is inevitable, that is intrinsic to this world that we live in. It's a hard reality. It's hard to come to terms with. It's hard to confess. It's hard to admit, but it is true that loss is inescapable as we live in this world where nothing is permanent, where God himself is the only thing that doesn't change. You remember back during the pandemic, especially when it began a few years ago, a lot of people lost a lot. They lost businesses, they lost jobs, they lost incomes, they lost savings accounts, they lost lives. They lost loved ones. Even in more mundane ways, loss is a daily reality. Uh, this year, recently, we have become aware of the fact that a, a bird flu has wiped out almost 60 million chickens in our nation, leading to a nationwide egg shortage. You almost can't find eggs in stores anymore, and the ones you can find cost a lot more than an egg ever should cost. During the pandemic back in 2020, it was toilet paper for a while, right? Remember that? One day at Costco, I suddenly found myself in the midst of a very anxious mob of people that had all suddenly gathered around to the back of the store where all the stacks of Toilet paper had been roped off, and then they unleashed them all, and the hordes descended, and people were pushing and shoving, and some guy climbed up onto the top of the stack and was grabbing those big things of toilet paper and heaving them over the crowd to his friends who were loading them on flatbeds. And the employees were yelling, one per customer, one, it was crazy. I thought I might, I saw my life flash before my eyes. Suddenly, suddenly toilet paper was far more valuable than it should be, right? Things can change pretty quickly in this world when the things that we depend on and take for granted in this world suddenly can't be taken for granted anymore. 
when they become scarce, when they are lost. So as we come to the book of Joel, I want you to picture with me today the situation that is being described in the first chapter here, the situation in the nation of Judah in the days of this prophet of God named Joel, days when literally everything, and I mean everything, that the people of Judah had depended on for basic living in this world, right? That simple, not comforts, not conveniences, but we're talking about the basic daily necessities of life. They had all been lost. And I want us to contemplate that reality together this morning as, as we think about the reality of loss in this world and as it affects us in our lives. So this little book of Joel, second among the 12 minor prophets in our study of the minor prophets. And remember that minor prophets doesn't mean minor in terms of importance. It doesn't mean minor in terms of significance of the message that God is revealing. It just means minor in terms of length relative to the longer books of prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. This little book, only three chapters long, is packed full of really important truth. There's nothing minor about its importance. The truth that God reveals here is, is massively relevant to the everyday lives of the people of God, to us. Now, we don't, we don't know anything really about the prophet Joel except what he tells us about himself in verse 1. Right here of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. The name Joel, Yoel in Hebrew, is a basic name. It just means Yahweh is God. And maybe it even has the emphasis of, as it's attached to a person, this name, the one whose God is Yahweh. That's what his name means. He's a man who belongs to Yahweh, who is the one and only true God. His father's name, Petuel, or Petuel in Hebrew, means God is steadfast. God is sincere. God is straightforward, is the most basic wooden way to understand that name. The straightforwardness of God. And together, as one commentator named David Pryor notes, the two names that are mentioned in this book really sum up the message of the book. It's, it's a book that's entirely focused on God. And its message is very, very straightforward. God is speaking sincerely and straightforwardly to his people, and he's doing it in the midst of a massive national crisis that his people were facing in the nation of Judah. And his message has no minor significance. It actually has eternal significance. This is, as Joel says right there in verse 1, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh that came to him. It is the living, active, mind-renewing, life-transforming word of Yahweh who is God revealed in straightforward sincerity to his people living in this world where loss 
is an inevitable and invariable and inescapable and relentless reality. We're not given any clues as we come to this book as to precisely when the book of Joel was written. Could have been written anywhere between the 9th century B.C. and the 3rd century B.C. That's a span of 600 years. Given the emphasis on and, and the references to the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood there and the worship that went on there, it's usually understood that Joel was prophesying to Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was. And the context that God is speaking to his people through Joel, the context is a national catastrophe that has fallen on Judah. Not just Jerusalem, not just part of the nation, but the entire nation of Judah, affecting everyone who lived everywhere there and affecting everything without exception there. It was a catastrophe that brought widespread national devastation by way of an invasion of the entire nation by locusts. Locusts, insects, big, like, oversized grasshoppers. And you say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> a swarm of insects might be annoying, might be inconvenient, might be irritating, but how could it be devastating? To the scale, especially where a biblical book of prophecy would be written about it. Well, it absolutely could be and would be and was that devastating to an ancient agrarian society like the kingdom of Judah was. Agrarian means a society that was dependent on crops and agriculture and farming for almost the entirety of its economy, right? They didn't have a bunch of different sectors of industry propping up their society, their economy, like modern societies do. They didn't have technology, they didn't have travel, they didn't have construction, advertising, entertainment, fashion, right? Retail industries as major driving forces behind their national economy. Like, like most ancient cultures in Judah, it was almost entirely agricultural. Now, by contrast, in our modern society where we have all kinds of industries like that driving the national economy, usually if one sector gets hit, it's okay because the other sectors compensate, right? But we got a taste, didn't we, a few years ago of what can happen and how it can feel. It was just a taste, but we got a, got a good taste of how it can feel if something comes along that disrupts a lot of industries. When the pandemic was first classified as a global pandemic, most of the world's governments, including our own government, shut down whole sectors of industry across the board, except the ones that they deemed essential. And that had a massive impact on all of the people who worked in all of the industries that weren't deemed essential. And a lot of people across the board, lost jobs, lost livelihoods, lost businesses, lost homes. The economy was massively impacted 
in ways that all of our children and grandchildren are going to be paying for for a lot of years. But the reality was, and the reality is that as impactful as that was, and still is for a lot of people, it didn't hold a candle to the absolute national catastrophe that didn't just disrupt the economy and, and people's lives in the nation of Judah, it absolutely devastated the economy and society and lives in the southern kingdom, all because of an insect. Because this insect, the, the locust, in the same family as the common grasshopper that we're familiar with, but, but bigger and prone, especially under the right weather conditions, to forming together in swarms, this insect could do untold damage because locusts eat anything and everything organic, like the leaves off of trees, like crops of wheat, like fruit that grows on vines and trees, like bark off of trees if they have to. They'll eat it all. Now, we know this historically. We know this even in modern days. In the 4th century A.D., Augustine even, in his famous book, The City of God, wrote this about a locust swarm that affected Africa. He says, when Africa was a Roman province, it was attacked by a large number of locusts. And having, having eaten everything, including all of the leaves and all of the fruits, a formidable swarm of these locusts then proceeded to drown in the sea, which then threw up their dead carcasses on the coasts, and the, sorry, this is gross, but the putrefaction of those insects so infected the air as to cause a pestilence so horrible that in the kingdom of Massinissa alone, 800,000 and more people are said to have perished just from the pestilence, let alone a famine. Of 30,000 soldiers garrisoned in Utica, only 10,000 remained. So that first, the locusts swarmed in and ate all the food supply. Then when there was nothing more for them to eat, they all died, caused a massive pestilence that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Devastating. And that swarm that Augustine describes was minor relative to the one in Judah in the days of the prophet Joel. Locust swarms can, can cover massive distances and areas of land. They've been observed in modern days more than a thousand miles out at sea, making their way hungrily inland. They can be immense in size, these swarms. In 1881, a swarm of locusts was recorded near the Red Sea that was, that was 2,000 square miles in size of locusts. 2,000 square miles. A single female locust laying her eggs in summer can easily have 18 million living descendants by fall. Single one her children's children, all that, while well, she's still alive. That's how quickly, that's how prolifically they multiply. Swarms of locusts have been recorded to contain up to 120 million insects per square mile. 
That's how dense they can be, dense enough to literally block out the sun in the middle of the day if you're underneath one. A swarm of locusts can easily contain up to 10 billion insects. And when they swarm together in that kind of density over a large area, they literally eat everything. They eat the crops and the leaves and the bark on the trees. They eat the wood off of the doors on houses. They eat the walls of barns where grain is stored so they can get to the grain inside. They shove themselves through cracks in the chimneys. They strip the barks off the tree. And then we know this scientifically and historically, when they die, they give off this horrible odor as they decompose and they cultivate typhus, which infects every kind of living thing, including fish and water supplies, wild animals, birds, livestock, human beings. Bad. Today in our modern age, in areas where locust swarms can break out potentially, there are actually international agencies that monitor for them using satellite reconnaissance. That's how, that's how important it is to know whether a swarm is coming. They use all kinds of sophisticated technology so that if a swarm of locusts is detected, they can try to mitigate it. They can try to fly over it with aircraft full of pesticides and try to knock it down before it comes and overwhelms a populated area. And still today, even today, once a big enough swarm of locusts is formed, trying to contain it really is, is, is fairly ineffective, minimally effective. So imagine, if that's true today, imagine living in a time before all of the technology we have today existed. And imagine living in a time when your entire economy and way of life depended almost entirely, if not entirely, on agriculture. On what could be grown for food and on the, the livestock that had to be fed with the crops that were grown for food. Imagine suddenly, and without warning, a massive swarm of voracious locusts, like I've been describing, blasting through the entire country. Joel describes it right here in verse 6, like an enemy nation coming against them, powerful beyond number, their teeth like lions, their fangs like a lioness. They've been invaded by an innumerable army of enemies of ravenous insects that devoured and destroyed literally everything in their path. So in a matter of days, in a matter of maybe weeks only, they had these locusts had destroyed everything in Judah that grows. All of the leaves eaten off the trees, the bark stripped away, it says, so that the branches were white underneath. That means many of the trees would have died. All of the fruit consumed, it says, pomegranates and grapes, everything gone. All of the crops gone. Livestock, dying of starvation, cattle, unable to milk, grass eaten out of the fields so that the sheep have nowhere to graze. And then the pestilence that begins to kill whatever's left and the water that becomes infected with that typhus. So nothing to eat and little to drink, nothing to sell, nothing to barter with in order to buy something to feed the population with. We're not just talking about an inconvenient egg shortage. 
We're not just talking about shelves of toilet paper being barren or restaurants and businesses being shut down. We're talking about an entire way of life in this world, on this earth, coming to a very sudden, very grinding halt entirely. That was the situation in Judah in the days of the prophet Joel. And we don't know exactly why. In so many of the books of the prophets of the Old Testament, there's a specific reason that God gives on why he's judging and sovereignly ordaining to unleash judgment on Israel or on Judah or on another nation. He, he specifically identifies elsewhere in Scripture various specific sins, right? Remember, like in Hosea that we just stud, studied, all the idolatry, all the immorality, which was behind the coming judgment of the Assyrian invasion. Well, God doesn't identify specific sin in Joel. You have to know that there was sin because the other places in Scripture tell us that there was. And even here in Joel, there are calls to repentance, to grieving, to mourning, not just because of the situation around them, but because in some way sin has prompted it. But we're not, we're not told exactly what it was that prompted this. It doesn't mean there wasn't a reason. There's always a reason. And a part of the message of Joel that is so important for us to grasp is that there's always a reason, that God is always sovereign over everything in all of creation, and that life in this world must therefore consist in faithful dependence on him. And in so many ways, they weren't. Trusting God, depending on God nearly so much as they were depending on their own strength and efforts, like we saw in Hosea, and the things of this earth. The things of creation instead of the creator himself. So, maybe it was some specific form of sin, or maybe it was that unfaithfulness in general that God was responding to and ordaining this massive invasion of locusts that was so devastating. We know for sure from the other prophets again that, that those things were true. And also, think about this. Maybe, maybe like Job, in addition to specific sin, maybe there was something to be learned outside of the context of sin which brings the judgment of God in specific ways. Wasn't that the message of Job? It wasn't, in Job's case, some specific sin that triggered the suffering that God sovereignly ordained for him. It was another purpose altogether for which God ordained Job's suffering. Well, whatever the case is, at the heart of the message that God reveals through the prophet Joel, there is this all-important reality that nothing happens in this world, in our lives, in any aspect of God's creation, in any instant of history, nothing happens just because of random chance or fate or the impersonal forces of nature. Everything lies under the sovereign decree and purposes and ultimately the control of the one true God. 
which means everything always has a purpose according to God's perfect wisdom and power and goodness. In 1994, in here in the state of California, this state had been rocked by a string of hardships, disasters, droughts, fires, floods, earthquakes, riots. And an article that was published in one magazine was, was trying to answer the question, why is all of this happening to California? Now, you and I think that the answer could be pretty self-evident. But this article concluded that all of this was happening to California because, quote, Mother Nature has decreed it so. That's a pretty ironic statement, right? Coming from a mindset that denies the reality of God, precisely because it refuses to believe that God decrees everything that happens in this world. So it's all just Mother Nature. But then, then they go and, and flip and ascribe the sovereign decreed of authority to the impersonal forces of Mother Nature. And then they even try to personalize nature by calling it Mother Nature. That's what's called paganism. Paganism. And one of the primary things that God would have us to learn from the book of Joel is that that kind of simplistic paganism must be rejected. If we just write God out of his creation, then there can be no hope and comfort in this world where loss is inevitable. And specifically, if we just write God out, maybe, maybe we'll give him credit for all the pleasant things that happen in our lives. Yea, praise God. But then if we write him out of all the unpleasant aspects of the world that he created and that he sovereignly reigns and rules over as he sits in heaven and does all that he pleases, all the hard things in our lives that, that we deem to be unacceptable in our world and in our lives, right? That's exactly what we do, isn't it? Every moment where discontentment is driving our hearts and our minds and our mouths and our actions and self-pity and anxiousness and panic and complaining and bickering. In those moments, what we're doing is we're declaring that whatever we're complaining about, whatever we're experiencing, whatever's going on is unacceptable to us. And we're becoming fixated on the natural causes that are, that are behind those unpleasant circumstances or the human causes in terms of human sin and injustice. We're angry and we're discontent and we're not going to take it anymore. Instead of looking past the natural causes and the human causes to the sovereign God who sits in heaven and does all that he pleases who is always just, who is always good, who decrees the end from the beginning, who establishes the kings and the nations, who is able to tear them down, who can direct their hearts like pathways of water, who orchestrates every aspect and instant of creation and history according to his good purposes. Listen, if, 
If, we if, we, if this is what we do, if we just write God out of whatever we deem to be unacceptable in the world and in our lives, and the reality is that in this world which God did create and that he does reign over faithfully, and where he is working out his purposes, if we write him out of the equation, we'll only ever know meaningless and hopelessness and despair in this world especially when we encounter the inevitable and relentless reality of loss in this world. So Joel, whose name means Yahweh is God, sovereign over the creation, the great I am is the personal sovereign holy one. Joel sees the hand of God in everything, in all of it, in the totality of human experience, even the really, really unimaginably hard things. And he talks about God's personal and direct involvement in all of it, in all human affairs. Joel's got the courage to stand up and to declare that in every circumstance, even the worst crises, God is sovereign, God alone has the answers, and that Crying out to God is the only answer. So, chapter one of this little three-chapter prophecy, having spent the first half of the sermon introdu introducing it, um, my, my pastor in seminary used to say, picture your sermon like a house, and if the front porch is as big as the rest of the house, so sorry, today there's a big front porch um, but in chapter 1, the front porch being the intro, in chapter 1 of this short three-chapter prophecy, Joel very simply describes this massive problem that Judah was facing, this great catastrophe of this invasion of, of billions of locusts and the devastation that they were bringing to the whole nation. And he's calling everyone in the nation to see this disaster and to respond to this catastrophe through a lens of of thoroughgoing faith in the sovereign goodness of God. So verse 2, hear this, you elders, those are the leaders of the people. Give ear all inhabitants of the land, because everyone has been affected equally by this plague, this disaster. It has not discriminated in its impact on every last person in, Ju in Judah. Has such a thing happened in all your days or in the days of your father? This was an unprecedented national catastrophe in their history. And it was purposed by God in order that the word of God in, in relation to it would be, would be timeless, would be relevant and remain relevant for future generations to come. Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. And we have it recorded here, thousands of years later. That's the message. Let God's word and let the truth about God that is revealed in his word in connection with hardship and suffering and trouble and catastrophe in relation to all of it, let God's word remain and govern your thoughts and your lives as you live in this world where all of that is inevitable. Let God's people remain steadfastly confident of God's sovereign goodness in it all so that we might not be consumed 
with anxiousness and with panic and with hopelessness and despair when the inevitable hardships of life in this world hit us and strip us bare. In verse 4, Joel just summarizes the extent of that present disaster in Judah in his day. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. It's not so much uh, that there were four different kinds or species of locusts, they're all pretty much the same. It's just that whether they're flying around or hopping or whatever, they just all cut through the crops with their jaws and swarm through the air and hop all over the ground. They all together destroy everything in their path. That's the emphasis. They came in mass and they left absolutely nothing untouched and the effects were massive. Everything was impacted. Fields, food, fruit, barley, wheat, the barns that stored the grain. The grain was gone. The beasts of the field, the very ground itself is all said here in chapter 1 to be devastated, laid waste. And that meant, Joel points out in chapter 1, that first of all, all of life's basic necessities had suddenly and utterly failed. That's the first effect. The vines, the figs, verse 7, the trees, the branches, verse 8, the fields, gone. The ground was left mourning because all of the grain was destroyed. There was no wine to drink. There was no oil left to cook with, to heat with, to light lamps with. They had no electricity in those days. They had no propane. They had no natural gas. They had no refrigeration. They had no canned goods. No way to stock up with long-lasting rations like we're able to do today. So that just meant that everyone, without exception, wasn't just majorly inconvenienced. They were all cast into an entirely desperate situation across every sector of society, from the elders of the city down, verse 5, to the drunkards in the streets who drank all day in order to drown their sorrows and try to be happy. They'd spend literally all day drinking wine until they passed out. Now there's no wine. So their dependency has been shattered. This, this false source of happiness has been taken away. All that's left to do is wake up and weep for them. Look down at verse 18. Even the animals were affected every bit as much as the humans. Even more. How the beasts themselves groan. The hearts of cattle are perplexed, confused, utterly dismayed because there's no pasture for them. So it's not just the, the fields of wheat that have been grown specifically for harvest. No, cows and sheep eat grass, which just grows everywhere without having to be planted or cultivated. And normally you just let your, your cows and sheep wander around out there and eat grass wherever there's grass to be eaten. But now all the grass is gone. The grass is gone. 
And so the, the, the sheep and the cattle are confounded. They, they don't know where to go. They're just looking around in the field looking for something to eat because literally there's not a blade of grass left standing for them to graze on. Basic necessities all decimated. Animals, both domestic and wild, are left groaning because their whole ecosystem has been devastated. And look at verse 9. Even the religious life, the worshiping life of the people of God in Judah has been upended, has been disrupted. Because the grain offering, which of course was produced from the harvests, and the drink offering, which of course was produced from the grapes that grew on the vines, they've been cut off from the house of the Lord. Those two offerings were, were daily offerings, twice a day, in fact, made by the priests during the morning and evening sacrifices, and they were one of the most, if not the most important thing that the priests did on a daily basis in order to intercede for the people of God and represent them before God. Their sins needed constant atoning in order for the people to continue to remain covenantally related to their God. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. There was no single sacrifice that could take away all their sin for all of time. As soon as one was offered in the morning, there needed to be another one in the evening because guess what they were doing in the afternoon? They were sinning. So these things were required by God to be done daily, regularly, and now they simply couldn't be done. No grain, no wine, nothing to offer to God morning and evening. So through the mouth of Joel, God is calling the people to recognize the massive gravity of their predicament over, over every single aspect and sector of their life. From the elders of the city to the common people, the drunks in the gutters, to the livestock, to the priests even. The priests mourn, verse 9 says, the ministers of the Lord. That's the opposite, right? They, it says they dress up in sackcloth and they mourn now. This is... This is their lot in life now. Normally what they do is they dress up in priestly vestments and lead the people of God in praise that God was daily providing for their atonement, but, but that's all been ruined. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers, go and pass the night in sackcloth because grain offering and drink offering are, are withheld from the house of your God. No. The word for what God is expressing through Joel here is, is, is desolation. Both physical and far more important, spiritual desolation. In the Old Testament, in Judah and Jerusalem, it was the very presence of God that was being mediated through those daily sacrifices and offerings. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies themselves. They couldn't walk into the presence of God themselves. They needed the priests to represent them and make these sacrifices. And so for them, the loss of this worship amounted to the loss of God's presence. Not unlike what happened in the book of Ezekiel when the glory of God rose up out of the Holy of Holies in the temple and then passed through the courtyards and then went out of the east gate and over the Mount of Olives as God abandoned the temple and never came back. Gone. This 
fear is a heavy dose of that same kind of desolation that had fallen on the people of God. I mean, it was hard enough, right, for us a few years ago to be made to shut down our churches and worship services for several weeks. This, this in Judah was far, far worse and far more devastating. So you see the picture, right, that's painted? There isn't a sector of their society, there isn't an aspect of their lives, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, that hasn't been devastated by this horrible catastrophe. So what do you do? What do you do when not only have the daily comforts that we all take for granted, like toilet paper and inexpensive eggs, when those things get threatened, and and not only some really important things get shut down, like electricity, or worse, the internet, but, but, but what do you do when the basic necessities like this, like food and water and heat aren't just threatened and, and, and temporarily disrupted, but they're completely decimated? What do you do? I mean, most of us have never known that kind of reality for even a short period of time. Some, some of you have. None of us have experienced it on a nationwide scale like this. What would we do? What should we do? What does God say? Verse 14, cry out to the Lord. That's what you do. And notice the way verse 14 is written. Cry out to the Lord's at the end of the verse. Here's what you do. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Imagine. Everything's gone. The whole economy has crashed. The stores are empty. The water's shut off. The electricity is out. There is no Wi-Fi. Nothing to eat. Nothing even out there to hunt. No hope it would seem to be found anywhere in this world. What would you do? God says literally in verse 14... Go to church. Again, notice, please, cry out to the Lord at the end of the verse after he says, call a solemn assembly, gather all the inhabitants and the elders into the house of the Lord your God. So he doesn't say, well, look, every man for himself now. Everybody shelter where you can and dig a hole or find a cave and hunker down and in the private and the quiet of your own heart and in your own way, pray and cry out to God. Nope, that's not what he says to do. I mean, that's, it's good to do that when you're on, on your own. But he says here, in the midst of this massive, unprecedented catastrophe, which he wants his people to remember for generations, that what they should be doing in times of trouble most desperate trouble, let alone in times where where things are pretty good and God's blessing them, what they should be doing is assembling together, gathering together, worshiping together. And in that context, together, crying out to the God that they worship. Because see, even when their grain offerings and their drink offerings were cut off, even when those daily means of meditating or mediating the presence and atoning favor of God towards them 
were cut off and destroyed, even then, God in his mercy beckoned them to come and gather and worship and cry out to him. Or see, for us, there are no such barriers to the presence of God like a holy of holies where we're not allowed to go. Like the need for twice a day grain and drink offerings and daily sacrifices. Because Jesus, our great high priest, has become the only offering we need and has made the only sacrifice that ever needs to be made to reconcile us to God so that we can draw near to his presence whenever and always and forever. And the question is, why don't we? It's because of his blood outpoured. It's because he tore the veil in the temple in two. He removed the barrier between God and us. In him, we who were once far off have been brought near. We who were enemies have been loved as sons and daughters because of the blood of Jesus. And so we ought to be coming to God through him often to give him thanks for all of the good that we have according to his kind providence and to cry out to him in our times of need as he requires here. We ought to be gathering and assembling often to be focused on and reminded of and assured of our sufficiency in him. His love for us, His sovereign goodness, His fatherly presence, His purpose in every trial. So that more and more we can learn to depend on Him and cry out to Him in our times of need. But how complacent Christians in modern day America have become. And getting people to gather is tough. The principle, see, is simple enough here. The principle is this. The things that our minds are focused on the most are the things that we put our confidence in the most. The things that our minds are focused on the most, the things that our hearts are captivated by the most, the things that we place the most value on, those are the things that we depend on the most. And, And what we tend to do in this world is is focus on and be captivated by and value the things of the earth more than our God. And whenever those things that we depend on are earthly things like money, bank accounts, investments, equity, retirement accounts, or food or water, or conveniences like internet and electricity, or comforts like nice clothes and entertainment, whenever earthly things of any kind are the things that we are depending on the most, because those are the things that we're focused on the most, that we value the most, whenever those things get threatened, whenever those things get shaken, whenever those things are lost, that's when we start to feel very anxious and hopeless and desperate and panic. And that is why we need to make sure before those things start to get shaken and taken away that our minds are regularly and habitually more focused on that our hearts are more captivated by, that we are regularly placing more value on 
that we are instinctively and intuitively more dependent on the living God who is sovereign and who is good than on any of the things of this earth because none of them will last. And they can all evaporate in an instant. So that's why he commands and exhorts and urges and beckons his people to be drawing near to him. See? To not forsake assembling together as is the habit of some, Hebrews says. Get together regularly. Gather together regularly. Worship together regularly. Because, first of all, of course, God's worthy of that. He's worthy of being the the singular devotion and focus of our lives on a regular basis as we come together to praise Him and worship Him and think about and do nothing else. And because when we do that, when we esteem Him worthy of that, and so we, 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 we turn from all of the other focuses and activities of our lives and we come and we gather and we assemble in order to focus on Him alone, that's when we're, we're fixated, see, then, on the unchangeable realities of His glory and his sovereign purposes, and his goodness, and his grace, and his love. So that then, in, in the times of, of life, when we encounter trials of various kinds, even the ones that devastate us and lay us low, then we can have him as our focus, and cry out to him more instinctively, and cast our cares on him. Because we know that he cares for us. Because we've been focused on him together regularly and gathering together and putting all of our attention on him. And we can rejoice. Even in the times of trial, most desperate affliction. Because we're focused on the fact regularly that even when life in this world hurts the most, we know that he is with us through every dark valley, through every fiery trial, and that he is sovereignly working in it all to accomplish his good purposes and with fatherly love to train us, to grow us, to strengthen us. And even though we tremble, we can rest in his presence and in confidence of his goodness and faithfulness and in his mercies that are new every morning. But again, the sad reality is how instinctively our impulse is, our habit of heart is not to cry out to God in our times of need. And the reason is because we've spent so much of our time and energy in our lives cultivating confidence in earthly things instead. And because the residues of that sinful impulse to turn inward on ourselves instead of turn to him, that, that still lingers in our hearts. And one of the chief ways to retrain our impulses, to pull up out of self, and to look above and away from all of the things of this earth, and to be Godward instead of earthbound and self-bound, one of the chief ways to retrain our impulses is to cry out to Him. Instead of just crying out in bitterness and hopelessness and anxiety and frustration and despair, 
And one of the chief ways to cultivate the habit to cry out to him is to cultivate the habit of drawing near to him. Gathering together, assembling together, being focused wholly together on his glory and goodness and grace so that our hearts and our minds and our lives can be more and more and more tuned to him so that when the trials come, and they will, our instincts more and more will be to cry out to him. Here in Joel chapter 1, there's been a terrible calamity. And it's been vividly described. It's, it's, it's literally one for the ages. It's one to remember for generations. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, Joel hints that this calamity, this historic locust invasion that devastated the nation of Judah was actually itself just a hint of a far greater catastrophe and calamity that was and is to come and befall this whole creation. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. There is coming a destruction which this historic locust plague was just a portent of, just a shadow of. And that will be our focus next time as we come into chapter 2. But in preparation for it and as we close today, think about your life in this world with that coming day of the Lord looming sometime in the future. We don't know when. Think about the trials that you suffer in your life. Think about your own calamities. Think about your own catastrophes. The very real times when the things of this earth get shaken and when it seems like they'll be lost. And during those devastating and painful times when they are lost. Think about all of that in the perspective of Joel's message here in chapter 1, summed up in verse 19, where when all earthly hope was lost for the people of Judah, Joel was left to simply say, To you, O Lord, I call. I got, I got nowhere else to go. I got, I got nowhere else to turn. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can fix here. This is the same place Jehoshaphat found himself in in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Lord, we don't know what to do. So our eyes are on you. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are all dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. There's nothing left, literally, in this world for them to turn to, for Joel to find hope in, in this world. All that's left is to cry out to God. Is that, is that the impulse, the habit that you're cultivating in your own heart and life? Every day, every day, every day. To focus on Him more to value Him more, to depend on Him more, so that if and when all else is lost, you can cry out to Him and rest in Him and know that 
even if I've got nothing else, and all I have is Him, it's more than enough, and it is eternally enough. Is that your life? Or are the things of this earth things that you struggle to let loose of in the grip of self-sufficiency and worldly dependency? So I think that the message of the book of Joel, and especially the opening chapter here, is in many ways closely related to the message of the book of Job. Remember, it wasn't specific sin in Job's life that God was sovereignly responded to, that, that was behind God sovereignly ordaining the brutal hardships that Job endured. And you shouldn't conclude when you go through hard times that, that, that God's sovereignly punishing or judging you either, necessarily. It wasn't judgment Job was enduring. No, in Job, what God was doing was using suffering to expand Job's understanding and esteem of God himself. To let loose his grip of the things of this world that, that, that are like trying to grasp after vapor and wind. And to lift his head from being consumed with all the stuff of the earth and depending on it too much. And, and to fill him with a, a growing confidence in God's glory. And sovereign authority over all creation and of his holiness and majesty and goodness. Job needed a bigger view of God. And so God took all of the things that were important in Job's life. Good things. Valuable things. Precious things. And stripped them away like the bark from a tree until all Job was left with literally was God himself. And Job learned in a way that he couldn't possibly learn any other way. How incomparably precious God is. How absolutely nothing in all of creation can ever even begin to compare to the infinite and unfathomable worth and value and glory of God and of knowing God. And from that perspective, as we think about all that God allowed and ordained to happen to Job, Job learned that for God to take away everything that was precious to him in this world so that his grasp of the infinitely greater value and worth and glory of God could be expanded, that wasn't an expression of God's judgment. It was, in fact, the greatest mercy that God could ever give. Can, can you view your trials, your sufferings, your sorrows, your losses through that same lens? Maybe that's, maybe that's at least a part of the lesson that lies behind the book of Joel, too. Maybe that's one of the big takeaways that God would have for us in this part of his word. Maybe stripping their crops bare would be God's way of, of causing them to glean and causing us to glean the greater harvest of greater dependence on him so that we could become closer and closer to being able to say things like the Bible says, right? Like the sons of Korah in Psalm 46 which we read and sang together today. We will not fear even if the earth gives way and even if the mountains are cast into the heart of the sea. 
or Asaph in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail. I might lose it all. But God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. Or what about Habakkuk? Even if the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, nor produce from the olive tree, even if the fields yield no food, even if the flock be cut off, and the, there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, because God the Lord is my strength, and He makes my feet like the deer's, and He makes me tread on my heart. That's the takeaway. May God be our portion. Let's pray together today for the Word of God to renew our minds in this way, to strengthen our faith in this way, to cultivate in us this, this kind of unconditional dependence and rejoicing that's not dependent on the things of earth and the circumstances of life, but on, but on Him who's always sovereign, who's always good, who's always with us. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for the hard passages of your word that cut like that double-edged sword and expose all of the ways in which we need to need you more. Father, would you open our eyes to the ways in which we are too self-dependent, too earthbound? too dependent on the things of this world for our hope, our security, our peace, our joy. And Father, would you teach us what mercy it is when you shake those things and when you take those things that we might recognize the great treasure, the inestimable treasure that we have in you through the mercies and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us who is our great sacrifice, who is our once-for-all grain offering and drink offering, who has united us to you and given us eternal hope and an inheritance that will be imperishable for endless days in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. Father, continue to grow our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.